Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate is joined by R.J. Smith to talk about Los Angeles in the 1940s and the role that city played in the birth of rhythm and blues, bebop, and gospel. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by R.J. Smith, author of The Great Black Way, a Los Angeles, what, uh, L.A. in the 1940s and the Lost African-American Renaissance. I started saying it was an L.A. Times bestseller, which it was, and that's well worth mentioning as well. R.J., welcome to the show. Oh, hey there. Good to be here. Cool. And this is a great book about a really key era. I've talked about this era with Ed Ward quite a few times, but you really dive deep into the structural causes of this era. And you make a pretty bold claim at the beginning that rhythm and blues was born as a pop phenomenon in Los Angeles in the 1940s. Can you elaborate on that claim a little bit? <laughs> sure, sure. I, 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 um, I, I hope what I said or what, I, what I, it, it's a great way to get people's attention. And what I most of all mean is insofar as it was born in any one place. I definitely would make the argument that all the threads or, or more of the threads get pulled together uh, in Los Angeles after the war for lots of reasons than in any other place. Uh, and in terms of a ryth- rhythmic innovation, in terms of a, 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 a kind of new uh, fervor that comes out of the church uh, for all kinds of reasons. Yeah, I think Los Angeles uh, has, a, has a lot of history to it that doesn't always get examined. Cool. And there's a list you have in the book of just the mega number of artists that were rocking and rolling, if I can use that term, uh, in Los Angeles in this time. And let's just run through it. We've got Maxwell Davis, Bull Moose Jackson, Johnny Otis, Winoni Harris, Crown Prince Waterford, Jimmy Witherspoon, T-Bone Walker, Johnny Guitar, Watson, Vaughn Streeter, Little Esther, Pee Wee Creighton, Ray Charles, Nat King Cole, Big J McMillie. McNeely, Pigmeat Markham, and many, many more. Um, it's just an incredibly vibrant era. And the book is about more than just the music scene. We're obviously going to focus on the music because that's the topic of the show. But can you give a little bit of the history of African-Americans in Los Angeles? Because I, I had no idea, for example, that more than half the people who originally found, founded Los Angeles were black. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that isn't that fascinating? Well, let me let me state this at the at the at the top just to so everybody has this clear. I'm a white guy, <laughs> and I am a, a white guy who loves uh, living here in Los Angeles. I, I love music. Uh, I, I love kind of thinking about American culture. And when I moved here in the early '90s. You know, I heard about the Central Avenue scene and, and wanted to read a book about it because uh, the history of the music and um, uh, there was a lot of uh, great black writing going on here uh, in the 40s and 50s, all kinds of things going on. And I wanted to read a book about it because I didn't know anything about it. And there wasn't a book. 
Now, it's crazy, but, you know, if this were New York or Chicago, I'm from Detroit. If this were Detroit, there, there, there are a shelf full of books about that kind of cultural history in that city, which is important to have. Uh, but there wasn't anything like that, certainly, you know, in the 90s uh, for Los Angeles. So I, I, I did the writer thing and wrote the book that I wanted to read. Um, so, so that's how I got into it. But I, I'm coming at it. Uh, I came at it and remain, uh, you know, an outsider. Uh, Los Angeles, you live here in a couple of years. And unlike a lot of other places, you're, you're not the outsider you are if I move to the south or something. But, uh, yeah, I'm an outsider asking ignorant or uninformed or wide open questions of people uh, who I met to write this book who um, were waiting, I found out, a long time for someone to ask of these questions. So it was great to meet a lot of older musicians and writers and church leaders uh, and newspaper people in, in black Los Angeles. And, and that's how I put the book together. Now, uh, we were talking about rhythm and blues. I remind me, <laughs> what was your question? Well, I wanted to get back to the founding of LA and, and the yes, African-American yes. community in LA, which yes. is very different than say Memphis or New Orleans, where it was a segregated slave city, or even Chicago or New York, where yeah. you had the great migration. You, you had great migration, but there was a black community here from the beginnings of LA. Yeah, well, well, the, the the first sort of founding migration was, was a a party of settlers coming out from Mexico, uh, and they founded the Pueblo of Los Angeles in the 18th century, late 18th century, and it was a couple dozen families, and they came up uh, from Mexico, and more than half of the population of that exploratory party, that founding party, uh, were African-American, not African, well, yeah, African-American in the true American sense. Uh, they were black settlers. Uh, and they created the settlement around the Los Angeles River, sort of nearish downtown Los Angeles today. And so, yeah, it was a black place from the beginning. Uh, and what happens from the 18th century on is uh, it's so wide open and there's so much room. Uh, after the Civil War, uh, it's settled. Uh, it's the West, <laughs> the Wild West. And there are Confederates. There are Yankees. There are whites and black people and Native Americans. And uh, a lot. we had um, quirky religions taking root here because of the empty space and the freedom people had here. Uh, it was a very um, spread out, small, fascinating place that, uh, that uh, gave birth to all kinds of stuff. And then what happens uh, uh, by the turn of the 20th century, um, uh, more um, established, familiar structures take root. Uh, it starts to become really segregated in an informal uh, way where there weren't laws establishing segregation. There were, uh, quote unquote, customs, ways of doing things, places that black people could live and more places that they couldn't live. Uh, and so what happens, most of a lot of that is done through besides things like the police, uh, schools, uh, uh, customs, as I said, which we're talking about racist practice. Uh, but there were these things called restrictive covenants, housing covenants that uh, when I sold or one sold their property to someone else, you wrote into the, um, the document, the deed, that uh, certain people could buy, the, could live here and certain people couldn't. And that was entirely legal well into the 20th century. So in that way, Los Angeles, like many cities in the North and in the West, certainly in the South, became uh, legally segregated. Uh, and that's huge. So what happens around Central Avenue, uh, which is the heart of, was the heart of the black community in Los Angeles, is that uh, in the 20th century, particularly, is that um, it, 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 it was a place where, where blacks could could live and own homes and 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 thrive. Uh, and increasingly, as the population grew here, uh, the areas around it are blanketed by deep neighborhoods and um, tracks that are developed because it's you know 
growing and getting developed. Uh, and in those areas, it's all white only or, you know, no Jews, no Native Americans, all kinds of uh, large and small deed restrictions on, on who could live there. So it was an island, uh, Black L.A. was. Only a few areas, biggest was Central Avenue, uh, which we can uh, should probably put on the map for people a little bit. Um, it was an island in the city and, and kind of grew up without a lot of attention paid to it from the rest of Los Angeles. And it was an island that was surrounded by uh, also Asian-American enclaves, and there was a neighborhood called Little Tokyo right there. And the period of time we're going to talk about is the World War II era. And tragically, you know, America interned uh, Japanese Americans and that neighborhood was sort of vacated. Meanwhile, there's this massive migration to Los Angeles because there's so much war work. And so, you know, the sort of stayed African-American community that was established is quickly overwhelmed by newcomers, especially from Texas and Oklahoma, but the first thing I want to get to, and I'll play my first song now, and then we'll talk about it afterward. And this is this is a product of the Harlem Renaissance, and and let's hear it. This is Duke Ellington and Ivy Anderson doing "I've Got It Bad and That Ain't Good" from the Jump for Joy show. Never. It's a great Duke Ellington with Ivy Anderson singing, doing uh, I've Got It Bad and That Ain't Good. And that was from his review, Jump for Joy, which was this amazingly ambitious review that was a real victim of bad timing. What was the theory of the Harlem Renaissance and the Talented Tenth? And and how did Duke Ellington epitomize that kind of attempt to change the culture? Well, I mean, there was this feeling... The Harlem Renaissance, amazingly important uh, uh, explosion of, of cultural energy and uh, creativity, uh, rooted in Harlem, of course, in the in the in the teens, the twenties, beyond. And uh, and I'm I'm just a, a, a hobbyist about the, the Harlem Renaissance, but 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 a prevailing notion was uh, the idea of the talented ten, tenth would be the the, the top ten percent, the 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 cultural leaders, the intellectual leaders, those who who had either the, the social position or the the capital or the education or or whatever the compulsion uh, to uh, lead from above and to uh, create a high culture often not completely but I think there was a, a kind of a prevailing idea that high elitist culture even would uh, have a great impact on the black masses uh, after it was released into the culture. And and so that's what the talented, talented tenth was, was sort of more a feeling of uh, leading from above, I guess. The, a cultural trickle-down theory, that's really reducing it. And I love the Harlem Renaissance, so don't don't misunderstand me, but I think that's sort of a, a classic definition of what it was achieving. Uh, and Duke Ellington was uh, living there then in the, in the 20s, uh, playing uh, on a regular basis in a couple of key places in Harlem. And so he had lots of work, was composing amazing music, and was in contact with you know people like writer Langston Hughes, all kinds of writers, dancers, theatrical people, and uh, who, who would have defined themselves to some degree perhaps as part of the talented tenth. So um, if I can keep going or I can yeah. – <laughs> Well, let's just talk about the Jump for Joy review, which is topical yeah. for us because it was put on in Los Angeles. And yeah. you know, it's Duke Ellington at his peak. You say it might be his very best all-time band. And yeah. you know, it did a few – it did, what, 100-something shows and was well-reviewed. But because of timing, the cultural impact was very muted. And I was really shocked – and saddened to find the thing was never recorded in its entirety. 
Oh yeah. So so they're out here. The band's out here, and they've got a a, a lot of uh, performances set up. They're on the road. They're often on the road. You know, by the '30s and '40s for sure. And um, they're out here. And and they, in the, in the '30s, this thing called the Popular Front, which is um, you know. Oh, definitely influenced by the Harlem Renaissance, I'm sure. And uh, it was it was about politics and and depression era culture. It was about putting creative people outside their uh, comfort zones to meet other kinds of creative people. And and it was a real cultural ferment. And out of the popular front, uh, many things happened. And and this was one of the biggest, most important. Uh, manifestations of, of what they were about the popular front folks uh, this musical that had you know interesting writers uh, writing uh, songs and lyrics for the performance uh, it had Duke Ellington's band it had some theatrical performers it was a, a classic kind of review production uh, there were Hollywood people involved here uh, lefties uh, nightclub owners it was this giant mass of creativity and they put on really well-received shows, uh, songs that the Ellington Band performed with uh, with with lyrics about uh, taking apart Jim Crow, uh, breaking down segregation, um, about human rights, <laughs> amazing stuff. And pieces of it certainly live on. And and they have people have kind of reconstructed it uh, as an after. Uh, after the fact, um, but but yeah, it wasn't recorded in its time. And you, we entered World War II. It was right on the edge of World War II for a couple of months. It was it was put on in the theater, a big downtown theater, and then war broke out. Everybody's uh, energy and attention was diverted, and now we couldn't. Um, we now the culture decided. <laughs> that there was less space for debating uh, civil rights, that it, it was improper, perhaps, uh, the prevailing thought would be to be dividing us. This is all familiar stuff to us today, of course. To We have to sweep aside our divisions or our arguments with one another for this larger effort, which we needed to fight, World War II, uh, but it, 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 it drained, jump for joy, and, and and Ellington never went back to it. Well, he went back to it in pieces. That's not totally true. But they never put on the full show again. And instead, you know, this is the third. The swing era really kicks off in 1935 and in California. And but when World War II starts, the music starts to change. And the next song I want to talk about is uh, Lionel Hampton's Flying Home, which he co-wrote with Benny Goodman and originally was recorded with Benny Goodman. But around this time or early on in World War II, they record a very different version of Flying Home with um, Illinois' jaquette on saxophone. And he cuts a, a solo that is seen as the birth of R&B. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, yeah, it's just uh, it's fiery. It it got under people's skins. It, be, it you know it was a jazz song that was a jukebox huge hit. Uh, there were lots of different versions of it. People sang that solo, uh, and it it just it, yeah it was a transformative moment. Uh, there was a fire to the playing. There was um, uh, it, it it just had a, 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 a this. I'm sure there's a rhythmic underpinning that uh, I'm ill-equipped at the moment to articulate. But uh, it, 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 let's it, just play it. it. Focused on a soloist. Was yeah, well, let's just play it and, and hear it because this yeah. is a solo that features <laughs> the same note being hit about two dozen times in a row. This is a, a Lionel Hampton doing "Flying Home" with Illinois Jaquette on the tenor sax solo. and doing a flying home a song many people identify as a key birth point of rhythm and blues uh emerging out of the jazz scene and and you know lionel hampton a big swing guy who's part of the benny goodman quartet 
uh, yeah. the first the first integrated band. And so this transition that's going on is really expedited by World War II. But there's this whole ferment and infrastructure that that builds up around the music. It's not just musicians playing in dance halls. There's also dozens of entrepreneurs who are ready to capitalize on what's going on, despite the fact that the wartime shortages, there's no shellac to make records, uh, there's rationing, so bands aren't touring, people are being drafted. It's it, the, the whole swing scene is kind of smashed, but nonetheless, in Los Angeles, there are thousands and thousands of migrants arriving every day, uh, working in defense factories, there are soldiers coming so there's massive audiences for bands to play and experimentation to happen. But I want to I want to yeah. switch a little bit and talk about one of the other traditions that kind of dies in this period. And I'm talking about blackface and minstrelsy. And uh-huh. there's a guy, Pigmeat Markham, who's now probably best remembered as a forefather of hip hop um, because, you know, DJ mm-hmm. Hollywood swiped his cadence and, and everything. But this mm-hmm. was a, a African-American performer who performed in blackface up until this period yeah. of time. Yeah, that's that's kind of hard to to explain in a nutshell, and and it's hard to explain. Period uh, to to modern audiences, but of course, America, uh, white America, had this uh, this unfortunate tradition uh, w- w- before the Civil War and, and around that period of time, uh, white performers uh, m- mocking and. Um, parodying and and uh, black culture would put on these performances in blackface uh, that were also uh, you know they it, it was like radio in a sense in that uh, a lot of other stuff came through along with the racism uh, it, it was a way of getting songs out so uh, for instance Stephen Foster's music uh, great American songwriter was uh, performed in in blackface uh, in, in minstrel shows. So there's that tradition of of white performers, uh, singers, musicians uh, putting on uh, minstrel shows in blackface, uh, full of racism. Uh, then after the Civil War, that fades out. Uh, black performers can now begin to enter uh, theaters and performance spaces and entertain publicly to audiences, um, and for lots of reasons. Um, hard to understand today. Uh, some of them have to do with theater owners who are white only wanting their performers to perform in blackface. Uh, black performers continued that tradition of performing in, in, with, with burnt cork, with darkened features, with uh, lips drawn on that were bigger than their own. Uh, all that stuff, it's hard to even wrap your brain around today horribly um, problematic, but gave uh, an important entree into, into uh, it put money in performers' pockets. It made culture, the sharing of culture possible. So uh, there's a lot, <laughs> there's a lot to think about on all sides of morality about blacks and blackface. That carries on, that was the, most of all the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century, but well into the 20th century, in smaller outposts uh, and in Los Angeles, uh, it continued on. Pigmeat Markham, important, brilliant comic, theatrical figure. If he were alive today, you know, he'd be making movies and probably rapping, and uh, we'd all know his name. He came from North Carolina. Uh, he was um, an insecure man, I think, in some ways, along with having amazing comic and dancing gifts. Uh, and he came up through that system, the, the black theatrical, you know, performing at places like the Apollo Theater uh, in, in the 20s in blackface. Um, and, and those bigger, big city theaters uh, that gave, uh, that hired performers in, in the theatrical reviews. Uh, and he never stopped. He, it's, it's, it's just tragic and amazing and so powerful. Uh, he, he wrote an autobiography in the, in the 60s, uh, a short book. He had a late career uh, transformation and, and kind of rediscovery. He was on the TV show Rona Martin's Laugh-In in the late 60s as a, a comic figure. Anyway, he, so he wrote a book at that time, and he talked about how he thought people wouldn't find him funny. Black people would not find him funny 
if he didn't put the blackface on. Uh, and what happens in Los Angeles in the 40s, the younger generation confronted him backstage at the theater, the Lincoln Theater in Los Angeles, uh, where he had a regular show and emceed and, and insisted that he stop doing that, that it was setting a bad image, uh, that the young people were seeing that, and it didn't it didn't affect them the way he thought it was affecting them. And so there's, I, I think you could do, you know, there's this movie, this, this movie now about uh, Malcolm X and Sam Cooke and Jim Brown and uh, Muhammad Ali in, in one hotel room uh, talking it out. And it's amazing. It's a, it's a really interesting play turned into a movie. You could make a great play and movie about the meeting of generations backstage at the Lincoln Theater urging Pygmy Markham to not put on the blackface. And he would still be funny because of his talent. Uh, but like Jump for Joy, it's something we just know about uh, from short accounts, from people's memories. Uh, Pygmy never really addressed it very much. So, yeah, but he, he went on for decades after that in, in, without the blackface and people did find him funny. He has a lot of records out, of course, that, that get sampled in, in, in hip hop. Uh, and, and he's, he's more known today in some ways than he was then. Yeah, it's a really ironic twist. And I just found it interesting that both the sort of Harlem Renaissance, the high end of African-American culture, and then the minstrelsy, the, the low end, uh, both kind of die a death in LA in this period. Meanwhile, um, R&B is born, and also bebop is not yeah. born. It's obviously born in New York, but Charlie Parker is out on the coast pretty quickly, and and people like Dexter Gordon are are having cutting jam sessions. Tell us a little bit about the the ferment and bebop scene in LA at the time. Yeah, well, that's that's another thing that because there was a, a ban on recording for a period of time, and for the war effort and other reasons, uh, not a lot of music was being made. Uh, it was a musician that, strike. The, the yes, musicians yes. union were trying to. But go ahead. They, they, they were having a big, big, big fight. Uh, and and uh, so on the one hand, you've got a huge number of musicians here in Los Angeles looking for radio work, maybe movie work. There's a lot of nightclubs. There's a lot of people with money to spend in nightclubs because of the defense industries, the factories going on around the clock, the shipyards, the munitions factories. Uh, auto factories that are building tanks. Um, and yet, and, and innovation is happening in the nightclubs that isn't being recorded for a few years. Uh, and so what happens is, yeah, as you say, as you say, it, it's uh, big bands are falling apart. The economics of that are, are, are disintegrating. Uh, and, and a lot of those musicians and, and a new generation of musicians are in the nightclubs in New York in Los Angeles, other places, but primarily New York and Los Angeles. And they're jamming after hours on their own for, for, for the joy of it. And out of that, a whole new musical language is, is, is establishing itself. And, and that's bebop. And let's take a quick break from our, for our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll hear more about the competition between bebop and R&B in LA in the 40s. And so one of the things I find fascinating about this period is at the time, it wasn't clear what the direction of black popular music was going to be, whether it was going to be Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker uh, ruling the world with bebop, or if it was going to be people like Louis Jordan uh, taking taking over with R&B. And, and so there's a period of time when when to the casual fan, there's not really a difference there. It's all jazz. It's all swing. It's, it's all black music. And, and this competition is happening, but it doesn't take very long for the simpler, more aggressive rhythmic music of R and B to take advantage. And one thing I have sort of been slowly piecing together, I'm a pretty poor student, um, that you really make clear in this book is that Pentecostalism is kind of this secret sauce of R&B <laughs> and it came out of LA which I had no idea tell tell us that whole connection well i mean it it might it's it, for me and 
yeah, there's a pivotal moment in, in 1906 in Los Angeles uh, in which um, there was a, 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 a pastor, a preacher, William J. Seymour, William Seymour, who came from Topeka for a while. He was studying there, preaching there, and he came to Los Angeles, African-American. Uh, he was blind in one eye. And um, basically, he's holding services uh, that you could you could do hours on this. But something happened. He believed in sp- speaking in tongues, which has always existed for centuries. But uh, he looked at it uh, as an as a more important um, how you really got God, how you received the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, involved speaking in tongues, uh, and here on a porch on a on a street called Bonnie Bray in Los Angeles, you can still go to this building, this little house in this you know in this neighborhood uh, on the edge of downtown, and he had a, a service with a, a group of, of, of Pentecostal members, uh, white and black, I believe, and uh, seven or a small number of them broke into tongues and were rolling around uh, receiving the Holy Ghost. And, you know, many things happen out of that. One story is that a woman who had no musical training jumped up and started playing the piano and could really play it well and spoke in Hebrew. Um, You know, it's about speaking in tongues and channeling information. And to me, (laughs) a a non-member, it's about um, channeling an energy and uh, a set of ideas about uh, equality initially uh, that resonated far beyond Los Angeles. Uh, the, the, it became to be called the Azusa Street Revival. He moved to a street uh, in, in, in Little Tokyo or in the periphery, in Bronzeville it became called too, uh, that uh, just so much took off so fast for a number of years. This church, this uh, modern expression of Pentecostalism, was about pure de- to me, pure democracy. Blacks and whites alike went attended the services. There wasn't a great belief or need for church structure. The idea was everybody was as good as everybody else, and if you felt the Holy Spirit, if you spoke in those tongues, um, you got it, <laughs> and you were. You were your own leader. Um, they had a huge passion, uh, wide open hunger for music that they used to express their faith. Uh, again, for a number of years, that kind of changes over time. Um, but yeah, so to me, certainly an outsider, uh, the, it, 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 there's an energy and a democracy, even an anarchy. <laughs> Uh, that was electrifying to people and that did shape music uh, in all kinds of ways that we still don't really look at too much because it wasn't recorded most of it. Um, but it definitely had an impact on rhythm and blues. Uh, there's, a, there's a piano player uh, who was here for a number of years, a Pentecostalist, uh, a woman named Arizona Drains. For starters, that's an amazing name. Uh, and she is just incredibly important. And there are a few recordings of her. You can you can go on the internet and call them up. And it's like early, it's like early Jerry Lee Lewis or something. It's boogie woogie to me. Uh, it sounds like boogie woogie. It sounds like rock and roll piano. It's gospel piano. And you hear Arizona Drains and her music from like hmm, 20s and 30s, I believe. And you hear rock and roll, you hear rhythm and blues in it. It's just not possible to, to respond to her music and not hear how it, it set the table for a lot of other stuff. And she's just one example uh, of what was coming out of that church, that set of churches, and, and transforming America. But we didn't have it on record, so we kind of get it from word of mouth. And and that emphasis on the beat that comes out of the the gospel and the Pentecostal tradition is something that carries over into R and B and and the schism between bebop, which is playing really fast and complicated harmonies, versus yeah. this much more beat heavy simplified system. And 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 there's a a period of time right at the end of the war 
when people start cutting records again and there's a small entrepreneur, you tell the great stories about this guy who managed to record two of the key songs that would be yeah. absolute foundation stones of R&B in this yeah. period. And I'm talking about Leroy Hurt and Bronze Records. And the two records were yeah. I Wonder by Private Cecil Grant and The Honey Dripper by Joe Liggins, which tell us about that and how this all slipped through his fingers. Yeah. Well, so so Mr. Hurt, who was still alive when I was working on the book, and was just an amazing, uh, proud, strong, um, humble guy. Uh, he was he's he I think probably always, but maybe later in his life was a real was was a man of the church. Um, but yeah, in the forties and and early fifties. He was an entrepreneur. He 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 opened a record store. He worked with Flash Records, which is an important record store, a black record store in Los Angeles uh, in the 30s and 40s. Uh, he was a musician himself. So he he's involved in record stores. He's involved in making music. He's involved in recording music. And he started out his own label. And yeah, he found this guy singing in the clubs of Los Angeles, uh, Cecil Gant, who was uh, his, he sort of had a, um, well, he had a wonderful uh, balladic singing style, kind of uh, Nat King Cole era, you know, roots of uh, doo-wop kind of singing, just an intoxicating uh, lyric voice. And he was a GI. So they called him an African-American GI, a soldier in World War II. Uh, he was the GI sensation. And um, Hurt recorded a ballad he was singing in the clubs, uh, I Wonder. And and it was a hit. And what happened with I Wonder was pretty quickly because uh, Hurt, Hurt at first signed him, put it out first, but his label was small and underfunded barely funded at all uh some a white label guilt edge came along and signed him again hurt did or no signed uh cecil gant uh where he recorded the same song uh, for a much bigger better funded label that could pay him more and uh that's that became an international hit uh that uh, really was important to kind of laying the groundwork for you know, doo-wop music. Uh, as far as the honey dripper goes, you know, it definitely comes out of that piano um, tradition that I, I talked about with Arizona Drains and others, a, a Pentecostal simplicity, a boogie-woogie sound, uh, that driving left hand that uh, that the right hand kind of improvises above on. Uh, and you can make, uh, with a boogie-woogie song, it's a dance. It's a dance, and you can dance to it for 45 minutes in a nightclub, or you can put it on a record and make it a three-minute hit. And, you know, uh, Joe Lickens performed it both ways. He performed it in the clubs for as long as people were dancing to it, and he had a hit on the jukebox with The Honey Dripper that Leroy Hurt put out on his label. And actually, I thought you said Hurt recorded it but didn't release it, and somebody else then snaps it up and released it. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. Okay, cool. But yes, let's hear the Honey Well, there Dipper. you go. It, Yes, the honey drip we're talking about. Yes, but who was that specialty? Who put out? I'm I'm sorry. It's been a while since I wrote that book. Yeah, yeah uh, I'm blanking on on who actually put out the honey dripper as well. It might have been. I want to say the modern records with the Bahari brothers. But I could be wrong about that. Uh, but let's hear it. This is Joe Liggins yeah. and the honey dripper, and I'll look up who put it out. Joe Liggins doing the Honey Dripper, and it was on Specialty Records, and and that's okay. uh, one that Hurt let slip through his fingers. But the story of Guilt Edge just stealing uh, Cecil Gant's "I Wonder" right out from under him is just heartbreaking, and and typical of the kind of tilted playing field that African American entrepreneurs have always faced in this country. But that kicks off just an enormous ferment and explosion of pop music coming out by 
coming out of LA and you got people like T-Bone Walker cutting really earthy blues. But then you've got another set of guys, um, Nat King Cole and Charles Brown that are doing a very different take on blues. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, there's something more intimate about it. The, 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 there's something less, um, you know, Charles Brown would talk about, I don't play front porch sitting out at bale of hay blues. Don't, you know, don't, don't look at me that way. Uh, I'm a man of sophistication. I, I'm a city person. Uh, I think that's the way he identified what he was doing with the music. Uh, the piano becomes more important in some ways, certainly with Nat Cole and with Charles Brown and others. Um, just a more urban mindset uh, in a way, maybe uh, the same way that uh, chess records was an urban expression of, of blues that was coming up from Mississippi. You know, what was going on in Los Angeles to some degree was an urban expression of, of blues that was coming out of uh, Louisiana and, and Texas uh, related, but, but different phenomenons and, and people that came into the city and, and established themselves here you know, they had mixed feelings, perhaps, about where they came from. <laughs> they didn't want to go back, necessarily. And they were glad that they had progressed uh, in their own definition of progression. And they looked at country as a sometimes a pejorative term. Uh, don't call me country. Don't call me a simple blues guy. I'm, I'm, I'm sophisticated. I have a knowledge that I entertain people with. And that was hugely important uh, message of pride in there. Uh, yeah. And there's also an element, you have a whole chapter you call Exotica, and and you talk about Nat King Cole's amazingly big hit, 1941, number one, Nature Boy. And his earlier stuff, he, he was originally kind of a jazz pianist. Then, then he does some songs that are kind of proto-rock and roll, like Route 66. But then he does this totally weird song called Nature Boy, and yeah. and Charles Brown is kind of in that same ferment because Brown's got a secret. Like he's he's married to a woman, but he's living a very different life and pretty openly. Yeah, yeah, he 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 was gay, and you know I think that well, there's a, there's a, there's many many stories within this story that we're talking about now. There's there's the classic formulation, not untrue of Los Angeles being a place where people reinvent themselves uh, because of the space and the newness of it. And the fact there were so many people coming and going, you know, you could change your career, you could change your name, your identity, you could redefine yourself here. Uh, that's a part of it. There's the Hollywood side of it, which said, you know, encourage you to do that. You can make more money if you change the spell, if you put an E on the end of cook, maybe, or, you know, or something far more radical than that. Um, and it's, and, and it's okay. It's, it's a part of create being creative is to redefine who you are for an audience many times, maybe in your career as Nat King Cole did. Um, so yeah, that, that's a part of it. And as well, uh, you know, we are repressive humans and we, things stay secret sometimes that are that keeping them secrets can do horrible things to people uh, and that's the story in some ways of uh, Corla Pandit uh, who is a, a figure in Los Angeles a big star here on TV in the late 40s and the 50s and beyond uh, Corla was uh, a man who wore a turban on his head and he had a whole fascinating backstory that people knew about, that he was a man on one level from the mystic East, he called it, from India, which is, he, he was a Brahmin and his family sent him to America to study music. And he was a great piano and organ player uh, who had a TV show in the late forties in Los Angeles and then it was syndicated around the country. Uh, and in fact, Corla was a man named John Red, who was a great jazz piano player, uh, African-American from Missouri, who realized that he would not be on TV if he were a black man in the 1940s. Uh, and he had this talent and this uh, creative uh, vision 
to reinvent himself as a mystic man of the East and became a pop star. Uh, there are many recordings of him, you know, that are fun to hear. He was in the movie uh, Ed Wood, uh, uh, that, that Johnny Depp movie about the director Ed Wood. Corla plays a, he plays himself. He's performing a song in the background in, in a scene in Ed Wood. Uh, yeah, he's an amazing guy. He, he, he had this sort of Sun Ra side. He had this vision he loved to talk about of um, bringing different people together through music and through a look at the cosmos and the cosmic energy that uh, was out there for us to apprehend. That um, is fascinating. Yeah, he's a really fascinating character, and I'd never heard of him before reading this book. So I want to thank you for introducing me to that. And if you're into that kind of, you know, lounge or exotica stuff, Corla Panda is right up that alley. But I want to talk about another guy now, which you sort of list. There's too many musicians to do justice to in this era without having, you know, a multi-volume tome. But you sort of boil it down that the avatar of the R&B explosion in LA in this period is Big J McNeely. And let's hear a song that Deacon's hop, and then you can tell us why you picked him to represent the whole era. Deacon's Hop. And why did you pick him to epitomize the ferment of this era? You know, I, I feel like in his playing, there's a, such a, a, an amazing shouting style, a, a screaming, a noise, right? That, uh, that, that to my way of thinking maybe connects with uh, the explosion of Pentecostalism on one end uh, of, of history preceding him. And on the other end um, connects with Rock and roll, feedback on guitars, uh, a communal experience uh, that the audience and musicians are sharing at a live performance. I mean, Big J would play these shows, for instance, at the uh, the sports arena downtown where there was wrestling and boxing going on. Uh, he would play, uh, you know, for integrated audiences uh, who went wild with uh, seeing Big J wander through the crowd blasting on his saxophone. He had a day glow uh, painted saxophone. They would turn on one of those um, ultraviolet lights. So you couldn't see Big J. You couldn't see anything except his saxophone glowing in the dark. Uh, there's a lot of ways to think about that in terms of uh, in terms of integration, in terms of music being the, the force, whatever. Um, so yeah, I, I just feel like Big J, and, and he was a product of Los Angeles. He grew up here, uh, was was new, was part of the jazz scene, the rhythm and blues scene, and then the rock and roll scene. He never left Los Angeles. Um, he, he just really spoke to a lot of things I was trying to get across in the book. And, and he was one of the first performers to draw in young white audiences, and that is going to lead directly to the rock and roll explosion. And before we wrap, I want to talk about another uh, pop phenomenon that came out, and this one connects back to the minstrelsy tradition. And I'm talking about Open the Door, Richard, which becomes not just a hit record, but you know, a massive pop phenomenon. Tell us about that. Yeah, it was a it was a comedy routine that was favored and, and visited by lots of different performers in the black theatrical world of, of, the, of, the, of the 20s and the 30s and into the 40s. Uh, different, different comics would do different versions of uh, a guy trying to get back into his, his, uh, his, his rented room after a night on the town, but he can't because he doesn't have the key. So he's knocking on the door, Richard, my roommate, open up, I'm home, let me in. Uh, and, you know, you could do slapstick with a ladder. You could do dance with it. Um, it's about wanting to get in after having a good time at the end of a night, I guess. And and so there was music involved with it, different different ways. It became a pop hit, I think, in 47. Um, uh, Jack McVie, Los Angeles musician, did a recorded version of it that became sort of the the, the big national hit. 
and from there, lots of different, it, it was an early example of, um, you know, one of those songs that everybody wants to reinvent for themselves, uh, do their version of white and black. It became a Spanish song, it became a schlock song. It was, there were dozens of different versions and, you know, um, journalists would pontificate in proper magazines about uh, the bad effect, open the door, Richard was having on American youth as they were greeting each other. Poor people named Richard that period of time and for decades after would get teased and people would come up to them and say, open the door, Richard. Um, so it, it's, it was like a little groovy song. It was just a beat, not totally unlike the a honey dripper in a way. It was this thing that you could do because it was so basic and catchy. You could do a lot of, you could put a lot of stuff on top of it, vocals, a, a joke, a routine and, and make it your own. And yeah, it was like, before rock and roll, it was one of those records that inspired a lot of answer records. And RJ, this is a, a great book. The book is The Great Black Way, L.A. in the 1940s and the Lost African-American Renaissance. Thanks so much for coming on the show and telling us about it. And, you know, if you're into early R&B at all, it's a great book. And it's just that is such a rich era. And I've really dug um, getting to know it better and better over the last few years. So, so thank you so much for coming on the show, RJ. Oh, thank you for having me, and and and, and I really enjoy I really enjoy what you do. Thank you. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate will be back with musician and music historian Brooks Long to kick off their David Ritz book club with a discussion on his first book, Brother Ray, His Own Story, the classic ghost-written autobiography of Ray Charles. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Edward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park. The Great Black Way, L.A. in the 1940s and the Lost African American Renaissance is out of print but available at many used bookstores. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com.